George Floyd survived COVID, but he did not survive a knee to the neck. But this just, it reaffirms the point that race is a public health issue that needs to be focused on. And when you disaggregate the data in virtually any sort of health issue, whether you're looking at access to care, access to healthy foods, transportation, access to housing, you're going to see those disparities based on race. A lot of the attention has focused on when the stay-at-home order ended versus how it ended. And it ended with just a big, giant party on. The virus, no shock to anybody, is going viral. We've let our foot off the brakes. The stay-at-home order expired on May 15th, and then we're seeing a pretty decent rise in the caseload throughout Arizona. We haven't seen numbers like this in Arizona before. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. Our COVID-19 roundtable is back today with a little switch up. Unfortunately, Dr. Nick Vasquez was unable to join us this time around. So in just a few moments, you'll meet a physician colleague of his who, as an added bonus, also brings the perspective of serving as a state legislator. This episode starts off as it should at this unique moment at the intersection of public health and race and the connections with COVID-19. Then we get into the numbers what the data have to say about coronavirus in Arizona. Spoiler alert, the numbers aren't good right now. Community spread is picking up steam. So before we get to the conversation, Vitalist would like to give you this tip. Mask up, AZ. Cloth masks work. My mask protects you. Your mask protects me. So please, don't stop washing those hands, practicing social distancing whenever possible, and when it's not possible, hashtag mask up AZ. There's a lot more to hear from our roundtable guests, so let's get to it. It's time to talk about healthcare, public health, policy, and community as we move into another new month of life with COVID-19. We are back again today with another COVID-19 roundtable. Joining us today, a perennial regular, Mr. Will Humble. Will, how are you? Howdy. Doing good. My colleague from Vitalist Health Foundation, Marcus Johnson. How are you, sir? Hey, John, doing well. Thanks for having me back. And unfortunately, Nick Vasquez could not join us today, but he did bring us an excellent substitute, Dr. Amish Shah. How are you, sir? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. I mean, we can't really have this episode without talking about the events of the past two weeks. So how should we talk about the events of the past two weeks in terms of public health, in terms of health care? Well, like so many things we've been talking about for the last two months, there's so many aspects to public health. I think that this is a really unique moment in time. And we've mentioned that before on the podcast about how this pandemic is going to make some pretty fundamental changes in our culture. We don't know what those are yet, remember? And so this is one of those things. This is a real movement. This isn't just a flash in the pan. You can see the commitment and just in the numbers and the level of authenticity that you see from the folks that are participating in all this. This is it's really making some societal changes, I think. This is a big deal. It is a huge deal. Just before entering the studio, one of the pieces that I read on the last two weeks said, you know, it's hard enough to be black in America. And in fact, George Floyd survived COVID, but he did not survive a knee to the neck. There's very clear evidence that we've been working with for a long, long time about health disparities amongst people of color. And now we have these two things intersecting at the same time. Marcus? To Will's point, I think a lot of public health and health partners for a good amount of time have talked about, we need to look at health disparities by socioeconomic status, by race, 
But this just, it reaffirms the point that race is a public health issue that needs to be focused on. And when you disaggregate the data in virtually any sort of health issue, whether you're looking at access to care, access to healthy foods, transportation, access to housing, you're going to see those disparities based on race. And so, you know, this terrible incident that happened, unfortunately, is not just a single incident. It is a pattern of instances that have happened over time. It is not just rooted in injustices within police departments. This is really embedded in the culture of the United States, unfortunately, and is something that I think we as a nation are finally starting to grapple with as a whole. One thing that I find hopeful about all this is that there's a level of commitment that you're seeing from this generation that we haven't seen in a long, long time. This is a real commitment these folks have put into. Just in Phoenix, it was 109 or something like that. Super hot. They're just committed. They see this injustice and they want to do something about it. And they're doing something about it. I think it's great. My daughter's here from New York. She works in the city and lives in Brooklyn. And she's been home for the last three weeks. And she went out there. There's nothing that could have stopped her. This isn't going to stop when this pandemic ends and folks go back to work. This generation's in it for the long haul. Dr. Shaw, same question to you as a practicing physician for decades now. This is not news to you, but how do you feel about it in this moment? First, you, you just have to address the gentleman himself and what you saw. It just, I mean, how much more horrendous, how, how much more heartbreaking can that possibly be? Like, just think for a second, either that's you, but imagine that's a family member of yours and, and watching somebody suffer in that way. I think just for anybody, but especially from perspective of physician watching, you know, you take an oath to ease people's suffering and to watch somebody go through that is just heartbreaking and moves you to tears. I certainly was. And yet I wanted to actually watch the video because I almost wanted to force myself to watch it because I, I wanted to almost feel his pain, like where, where he was at that moment. And I think that that's what it did. It, it touched a lot of people and brought out a lot of just a huge range of emotions. But can you imagine the sadness, the anger and, you know, everything else that, that a lot of us are feeling? I'm really, really happy that it's bringing attention to systematic factors. Also a terrible legacy that has left us with a community that is facing a huge disadvantage. I would say a lot of it has been the economics, specifically the huge wealth gap that's been created. All of those things when put together that with the, the educational inequality that, you know, those of us in the legislature, we're, we're sort of, we're always kind of keeping our eye on that, the, the educational inequality that the kids face with regard to funding, and then the headwinds to full participation and opportunity in society. And then you start to get it. You start to feel that people feel trapped. They feel frustrated. You can feel the pain from it. And that's, I think, what's causing this movement really to crystallize and to become sustainable. That's my sort of view on it. Yeah. And combined with, I think, the lack of accountability for law enforcement behavior when there's poor behavior, by and large, there's a lack of accountability because there are internal investigations in most places. When there is a referral to a county attorney, almost always, especially in this state, no charges are ever. And so you have this sense of non-accountable system that's out of control and it reaches this crescendo point with Mr. Floyd and now it became so real it's a system out of balance because of the lack of accountability in my opinion in part and a system out of balance in terms of how we fund our well no I was adding to what Dr. Shaw was saying and Mm -hmm. then you look at how you operate a system just take law enforcement in its own prism and if you operate a system without accountability 
you get poor performance. Will, you were state health director for a number of years and you were interacting with these other systems. Are you more frustrated now than then? Just as frustrated? No, actually less because there's a movement. Take a look at the ads. Look at the campaigns six years ago for elected office at the local level. More police. That's what you'd see. Mm -hmm. That was the campaign. Let's increase taxes so we can have more police. And now you have a different frame of reference. And so I'm actually less frustrated because now there's a movement. Maybe there's going to be some change. And we're talking about a bunch of folks who work in health, right? We're not here for a a discussion about politics necessarily. We're here for a discussion about public health and public well-being. And yet everybody at this table today is saying this is a huge part of health. Marcus? There's no doubt that there are systemic changes that need to take place and that this movement really is starting to focus on what are those systemic changes that need to happen from a funding perspective or taking away certain permissions that police departments have at the moment. To Dr. Shah's point about feeling this at the moment, I mean, I can't tell you personally, like as a black man, this is the first time that I've actually had this degree of discussions with friends and family about the implications of race. I was raised in a pretty middle to upper class family where a lot of my friends just assumed like, oh, you know, because you've been in this socioeconomic status, you've been able to flourish and and you've never had to deal with any specific instances regarding race. That's not always the case. And when you have those discussions, and if you're talking to a friend that has had experiences with race, if you yourself have had experiences with race and you're sharing those experiences, That's when people start to change internally, not just the policies and systems that are around us, but like internally something clicks. And we realize that this isn't just something that's happening to those other people on TV. This is something that is embedded within our own circles, our own families. And we always talk at Vitalist about how once you see it, you can't unsee it. And you realize that this is something that all of us, whether it's individually something that we faced in the past or if it's something that our close friends and families have faced, is something that is affecting all of us. Turning subjects a little bit, let's go to one that's known as the novel coronavirus and COVID-19. Will, we still can't see it. As much as the protests were so critical this week, from a virus perspective, they're even scarier. Here's the thing about this virus. It's got an incubation period and a lag time for testing. And so when you have an exposure, you don't see it in the data for about 10 days. And so what we're seeing over the last few days, so right now it's June 8th, Mm -hmm. the data that's coming in over the last few days, this big spike in cases, those were exposures that happened over Memorial Day, that three-day weekend. So... The week that we just saw with the protests in our city and other parts of the state and the big protests you see in places like Philly, et cetera, I'm sure there were exposures and cases going to come out of those events. That's the data that we'll be seeing in about 10 days. I did do a lit review, though, over the weekend, literature review, was trying to figure out what evidence is there with respect to indoor versus outdoor environments for spread of the virus. The only thing I could find was a preprint study came out of Japan where they compared indoor and outdoor exposures, and they found that indoor exposures were 17 times more likely 
to spread the virus than outdoor exposures. And so, I mean, these were big events with lots of people. It's a preprint, so it's not in a peer-reviewed journal that's been tested or anything yet. But hopefully, and it, it does intuitively seem like outdoor exposures would be less likely to spread the virus. But when you get that many people together, it's inevitable that we're going to contribute to the epidemic here in Arizona and across the country. Which really we won't see for at least 10 to 15 days. Like mid to mid-late June cases that we would see coming out of there. Now, there's one part we don't have to actually project on. We can just go ahead and look at the numbers. The Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation said that the lowest point of movement in Arizona was roughly about the second week of April. And ever since then, we've been slowly trending upward, as have hospitalizations, bed capacity going down, ICU capacity going down, and case counts going up in Arizona. We don't have to conjecture about that. We can see it. Dr. Shaw, when you see some of those numbers, what would your thought process be if you were the guy making the decisions? Well, I I first want to say that the legislature doesn't have really a whole lot of control during a time like this. The executive branch really controls most of our response. So it's DHS and the governor's office that will really determine what's going on. I have maintained an open line with those folks and tried to give them my two cents as a physician, a legislator, and somebody who has a public health degree, talking to them about what are the important factors to consider and how to make decisions, how to keep the public safe. I advise that we remain watchful and nimble because what will happen is based on the numbers that we're seeing, we have to start planning and preparing for the decisions that come next. Because as you rightly said, what we're seeing now is a reflection of what actually was kind of happening 10, 14 days ago. And so now we're seeing the consequences. Well, what we do now affects what happens 10 to 14 days from now. And the virus no shock to anybody, is going viral. We've let our foot off the brakes. The stay-at-home order expired on May 15th, and then we're seeing a pretty decent rise in the caseload throughout Arizona. We haven't seen numbers like this in Arizona before, and it's actually drawing some national attention. People across the country, some of my friends who are physicians saying, hey, by the way, what's going on in Arizona? Your numbers are going up in a big way. What does that really translate to? Okay, well, as we know, certain percentage of those people will end up in the hospital. Certain percentage of those will end up in the ICU and intubated and mechanically ventilated. So that will up a lot of our capacity. Fortunately, we've been monitoring that with the ADHS website, and we know that the ICU capacity continues to dwindle. Last I checked, we were at 84% full and less than 400 beds that are open. That's where we really need to first focus and say, okay, we cannot run out of ICU beds. The minute you run out of ICU beds, you have a situation like New York or Italy where suddenly the mortality will really spike. And so decision makers, I'm talking about the executive branch here, has to be very nimble and has to sort of be on guard with this. What are the range of policy options that are available? Do we need to enact some of those so that we don't hit that point where we lose the capacity to take care of people? So here's a really loaded question. At the governor's press conference last week, he literally sat in front of a chart that showed an uptrend in cases. And the questions were asked repeatedly of both the governor and the director of the Department of Health Services whether or not we had a trend going upward. The answer between the two of them was, we expected a climb in cases, but we don't think we have a trend yet. I am asking each of you how you would have answered that question. There is an upward trend. There's no doubt about it. Big time. Marcus, agreed? Completely agree. I try to simplify it into terms of, are things getting better, are things getting worse, or are things staying the same? Things are definitely getting worse. 
you work with me, so you know I tend to work 14 days behind and it's not pretty. So this is not the right way to manage a pandemic, is it? I think we need some policy changes like this week, like now, actually before this. Here's my take on it, is that a lot of the attention has focused on when the stay-at-home order ended versus how it ended. And it ended with just a big, giant party on, if you ask me. It, there was no criteria in place to hold businesses accountable. It was all voluntary. And so it just ended, and it's like, y'all just do your best or don't, and no one's going to hold you accountable. I think we talked on the show two weeks ago about let's let the cities do their job. You know, the executive order 36 took the city's authority to do things at the local level, to use their community affairs staff and planning and zoning people to work with their businesses so that their businesses are operating in a more responsible way. That's where cities are really effective at that local stuff. Their authority's been taken away, has been since the 15th. For the life of me, I don't understand why that authority's been taken from them and they could have been doing a lot to make a real difference. Now, not every city council was going to do something, right? But at least they would have had the opportunity and voters in those jurisdictions would be able to hold those elected officials accountable and have their voices heard. But the way it's set up, the cities can't do anything. So that's one thing. Another policy change, we've got to do a better job with assisted living and skilled nursing in terms of infection control and testing. And I think that has been an area that has been, by and large, ignored, not completely, because the county health department gave all their stockpile PPE to skilled nursing, so that was a good thing. But the regulatory authority lies with the State Department of Health Services. The testing resources, for example, that went into those Saturday drive-up clinics, those tests could have been in assisted living and skilled nursing. We could have had some people in there making sure that the infection control was using best practices. We could have done things to divert whatever PPE we possibly could to those settings. And the reason I keep talking about assisted living and skilled nursing is if you will look at where the hospitalizations are coming from, that's the age group. If you look at the data, that's where the surge is coming from. So that's an area where we could be doing a better job as well. And I want to talk about masks. There's emerging data and information to show that cloth masks not just protect others when you wear a mask, but it protects you as well. That's another simple thing that we could implement at the state level, requirement for cloth masks. Because if you don't, we're going to end up with these field hospitals or another stay-at-home order or both. And for the record, there is a Mask Up AZ campaign that's being launched to try and get folks to do that. But from a policy perspective, there is no executive order. There is no policy in place for that. It's a suggestion. Yeah. I want to say, Will, thank you. You stole all my talking points and all my thunder. You said exactly what, <laughs> what I was going for, which is that what we've seen is that the evidence coming out, and we've actually looked at some of that along with, I've had uh, the folks at the Arizona Medical Association also help me do a review of the peer-reviewed literature that talks about masking and more of the evidence favors the idea that everybody having a mask, especially indoors, would dramatically decrease the transmission of the virus as a public health measure. That, I think you're right, is an important policy option. 
Now, how exactly we would make that happen is another story. So there's an enforcement issue there too, right? So what would you do? And I think most of us would say that, look, you'd have to be kind of gentle about it. But nonetheless, if you had widespread compliance all over the state, you'd still see a real meaningful decrease. And therefore, the number of cases would then decrease. And the other thing that you touched on right there was the idea of what I call senior care facilities, you know, your skilled nursing, your nursing homes, your, your assisted living facilities. So I, I just lumped them all into places where a lot of seniors are, are present. Well, those places, you're right, are places where a lot of the cases are coming from. More importantly, a lot of the deaths are coming from those places. We heard an off-repeated statistic that 71% of the deaths in Maricopa County, as of a couple of weeks ago, were from those kinds of facilities. So if that's the case, then we've got some data to drive policy and say, okay, why don't we try to protect those specific locations and target policy towards those locations? I'm, I'm going to tell you, as a legislator myself, I've actually already started work on that exact type of strategy. So we've, we've got a stakeholder meeting coming up where we're going to discuss a, a series of bills that I, I call my senior protection package. And we're going to start working to develop a series of, of policies. And, and some of it is exactly what you just mentioned, PPE testing and sort of staffing requirements that will address that specifically and, and try to keep those people safe. I mean, it's the most bang for your buck you can get. If you're going to spend some money, spend money there because that'll really reduce the deaths, reduce the hospitalizations, et cetera. I hope that we get a chance to address that. As you guys probably have heard that the, the legislature has adjourned sine die. We are officially just out of session. However, with COVID, with the severe economic downturn, we may need to come back for a special session to address the economics, the hit that the state budget is going to take, but also opportunities to put in place the, the kinds of things that you guys just talked about, public health measures that will do the right thing. So I hope that I'll have the opportunity to bring those forward. On the point of legislation and on the point of senior care facilities or skilled nursing facilities, it seems as though even within that population of places, there is a variation in the capacity of those facilities to respond. Smaller private skilled nursing facilities have been rather overrun and not able to contain. Others, for example, affiliated with hospitals, have been able to mount a very swift and effective response to slowing the spread of the virus. Is there mm -hmm. something that should be done from a policy perspective to make sure that there is a more consistent capacity for skilled nursing facilities to respond to something of this nature? I think that question is probably for me. And I think that something that is also part of my little package, uh, and again, th these are not finished bills. We are meeting with stakeholders to try to develop these options a little bit further. But basically what we're trying to do is trying to take everybody who is COVID positive and segregate them away from everybody else and keep them safe. So to the extent that the smaller facilities may not be able to take care of these folks in the short term, we should have options for those folks to be able to move some of the residents out for 14 days, quarantine them first, test them, figure out who's positive, keep them safe by not having the staff infect them in some kind of systematic way. And if and when somebody does turn positive, you have to be able to move them out, keep them out in quarantine in a COVID positive only facility that matches their level of care and then be able to move them back into their home. So I think that these things can be done, but we just have to focus on them and not take our eyes off the ball. We're going to go lightning round questions real quick. True or false? It's possible to have a business that serves food and drink and create a safe interior environment for people to share that food and drink without masks. True. Marcus? True. Dr. Shaw? 
Um, I can't give you a quick answer on that. I would say that everything involves a measure of risk on a grayscale. When you say the word safe, what does that mean? Safe is a relative term. Would you agree? I would. Some things are safer than others. I mean, would you say that an indoor restaurant is safer than an outdoor restaurant? No, of course not. The outdoor restaurant's always going to mean if you've had everybody outside, I, I think the evidence suggests that the outdoor restaurants would be safer, right? The safest thing, if, if you were 75 and had medical problems, I don't know if I'd tell you to go to a restaurant. No matter what they had going on in terms of their safety procedures, the data and the evidence have really shown that there are some things that are riskier than others. Indoors being worse than outdoors, for example, and, and age being a clear risk factor for bad outcomes from this disease. For example, you know, if you go to a gym and, and now you're breathing very heavily because you're, you're working out and now putting more viral particles possibly into the air, right? So we know it's, it's not hugely airborne, it's mostly droplet and contact, but it's not completely not airborne either. It's important to kind of realize that some things are safer and some things are less safe. Excellent answer, even though you failed completely at the lightning round. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was a damn good answer, so we'll let it ride. Next short answer question. Is another stay-at-home order warranted? If it is warranted, do we even think it's socially possible? I think we can avoid it if we do some of those interventions, better contact tracing, better local control, increased scrutiny over skilled nursing and assisted living. We could avoid another stay-at-home order. But to answer your second question, just by looking out into the environment where I go, I don't think people would comply with it. They won't even wear a cloth mask. Or if they did wear a cloth mask, that would be one of the things that would stop us from going to another order, correct? Correct. Marcus? Is it warranted? Potentially, yes. You know, we're not in any better place now than where we were a month, 45 days ago. So it probably is warranted. Is it feasible? I'm not so sure about that. People aren't wearing masks as much anymore. There's kind of an air of optimism, even though the data doesn't back it up. And I worry that we might be doing more harm than good if we did implement another stay-at-home order. Dr. Shaw? I would say that it is the option of almost last resort. We, we don't want to go back there. There are many other things we can do before we get to that point. But that's part of what governing is, is making difficult choices if you know that it's the best for the people. These things are sometimes unpopular. As we know, it really frustrated people. There's a certain segment that really believed that it was wrong on a lot of levels. But given what we know now about the data and, and all the evidence that's out there, we, we know that it really does slow transmission. Again, I, I don't think we want to go there for a lot of reasons. But if we had to go there, it is an option that I think we continue to hold in our back pocket. Next question. Our case doubling rate is now 17 days instead of 34 days. You're the governor. What do you do now? Well, I'm going to do just what I just talked about. I won't sound like a broken record. Put a bunch of resources and a bunch of staff and a lot of priority on assisted living and skilled nursing facilities. Require cloth masks for the public. Make sure that the counties have as much contact tracing staff as they can possibly get. Work those three things as hard as you can. Marcus? Part of it is in the framing and the rhetoric. I think there's been a lot of talk about how to effectively reopen it might be helpful to resurrect more narrative about slowing the spread and stopping the spread. 
it just definitely seems like we've been focused over the past handful of weeks more on the economic recovery. The original slow the spread and flatten the curve talk has has kind of dissipated. Dr. Shaw? I agree with Will. Mostly we have to start trying to find ways to bring that rate down and prevent our healthcare system from becoming overwhelmed, which, which is a, a real possibility. Last question, the easiest question of all. Probably by the time this episode is released, the stock market will be back to where it was in early March. Last week, new jobs report came out saying millions of new jobs have been created. It's over, right? <laughs> oh, that's rhetorical. So <laughs> I think that even if there is some rebound that we have not fully recovered, I don't think anybody really believes that we've fully recovered economically. That's one. Number two, big difference between Wall Street and Main Street, right? Wall Street is based on investor expectations. That's what stock prices reflect. They look at what will stocks do over the long term and what kinds of dividends will that bring me or some kind of total return. And then where do we expect that to be in, in the longer term? That doesn't necessarily reflect the pain that people feel in their wallets. And, and that is a very, very important distinction because remember the, the stock market, again, if you, whether you look at the NYSE or the NASDAQ or the S&P, whatever composite you use, that's really going to take publicly traded companies and give you a, a sense of where their health is, correct? Meanwhile, you, you've got a lot of brick and mortar. You've got small businesses that are 99% of businesses out there. It doesn't reflect their economic reality. So you can still have Wall Street doing absolutely great and still have lots of you know, other economic problems. So mostly I ask questions. Today I'm going to share frustration and ask you to react to it. New Zealand is currently celebrating the fact that it has, quote unquote, defeated the virus. It did so by locking down for over 75 days. We have models and projections here in Arizona that the longer we had stayed closed, the lower the curve would have been of infection in Arizona. We are not seeing a hockey stick growth in cases, but we are seeing a growth in cases because of how we've chosen to reopen. Why can't we change that trajectory? Remember, New Zealand is an island nation, right? I mean, how, how, what percentage of their international traffic is coming in by a couple different ports? And it's a nation of 3 million people. That's a population of that, like something close to Maricopa County. We're a nation of 330 million people. The challenges of making that happen in a different way for us compared to them policy-wise, I, I think it's a little bit apples to oranges there. But there are also cultural differences. I mean, we, we know that in, in countries like New Zealand and Australia and they much of Europe, there's a lot more trust in government. There's a very different relationship of people to their government. They also, most of these places have like single payer healthcare. And so they know that there's a trust with public health authorities and a partnership there. And, and people feel sort of invested in their healthcare systems, I think a little bit more. So I want to say that there are some of those differences there. Yeah, I agree. Dr. Shaw's right. To the mask question, there is a fair number of articles coming out, nothing statistically, I don't think, just an analysis of population saying that some Asian countries did so much better than the United States because they actually already had a culture of masking, whether it was for pollution or for SARS, whereas the United States had never been through anything like this. How much do we think that factored in and, and what does that tell us about what we should be doing now? Here's the way I think about it. These interventions are all layers. The physical distancing is a layering effect. Cloth mask is a layer. Disinfection is a layer. So there's these layers of protection that you put down, and no single one of those is going to drive the outcome. But collectively, they can. And so that's the way I look at it. 
The difference, too, is that in the U.S., for many reasons, we are at higher risk of over-politicizing things like masks. It's not just, are you doing this to protect your health or the, the health of the people around you? It somehow has become an indication of your moral virtue or which political side of the aisle you bend toward. That's made it even more difficult in the States. Well, there's some of that. And there's even the whole notion of like in the old West, if you wore a mask, you were a bad guy. (laughs) I've heard that. I've heard, you know, like American culture just doesn't support the idea of covering your face. Hmm. Personally, I think when when you compare it to Asia, look at at our situation. I, I think that also, again, kind of like looking at the New Zealand situation, it's a little bit different in that those countries have just had experience dealing with pandemics or a virus that was similar to this that was out of control. They've seen it before. The public is aware. They felt it. It was real to them. They knew they're going to be prepared. They're going to do something about it. They're not going to let their people suffer nor their economies suffer because of unpreparedness. Now, I just don't think it was real for us in the same way. We didn't feel that it would happen to us because that's something that happens across the ocean somewhere. I think that the United States, the people certainly do not ever want to go through anything like this again. And they're going to demand whoever's in in power is assuring us preparedness and make sure that that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. We'll we'll be better the next time. I'm I'm almost certain of that. All right. Let's just make sure we cover off on what's the latest with treatment and vaccine. Is there any latest? Is there are there any new developments? (laughs) Do you want a lightning round answer? Because it's no. Dr. Shaw, how was your first podcast experience? Uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. It's better than cats. <laughs> Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Will. And Dr. Shaw, I think we can all agree you fit right in at the round table. No one would have ever guessed that this was your first time as a guest on a podcast. We're going to say it one more time. Don't think for a second that there's nothing you can do because there is. Mask up AZ. As Will said, cloth masks work we can protect each other from community spread. My mask protects you, your mask protects me. Hashtag mask up, AZ. Our roundtable will return in two weeks, but don't you fret because we will be back next week with a different topic for you to chew on. And by that, we're referring to an episode you won't want to miss focused on Arizona's local food systems in the context of COVID-19. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes like our affordable housing episode from a few weeks back that has been a big hit, or our episode from last week that focused on the art and practice of storytelling. And there's so much more to explore related to community health and well-being in our other episodes too, including guests from across the state and national experts. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Don't forget, the Vitalist Spark is also now on Spotify, and you can subscribe to be notified of new episodes there too. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. 
With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.